Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Hello, everybody. This is Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. We have a, a very important topical um, and in, in some areas quite somber and tough show uh, this week uh, as we cover the current crisis uh, in Gaza following the attacks on October 7th. Um, and we are going to be talking to a host of guests uh, about what has happened, what is going on, and what the future may look like. First of all, I want to welcome everybody back to Politics Uncensored here on Fubar Radio. I'm your host, Ali Milani. And every week we cover a, a variety of different topical issues from around the world, uh, sometimes domestic uh, politics in the UK, uh, and sometimes more abroad. And that's what we're going to be touching on today. Um, we have a number uh, of brilliant guests who are going to be joining us to talk about the current Middle Eastern crisis, including Professor of International Politics um, and Middle East, Amnon Aran from City University and Dr. Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, who's going to be talking to us about Israel's response to the October 7th uh, attacks. But before we get into that topic specifically and um, are joined by our guests, we have the week unwrapped. Now, regular listeners will know this is where we talk about some of the key topical issues uh, from the UK and beyond what's going on in our politics and we always do it with a guest and we have a returning guest this week and that is Cecilia, Director in Civil Service but speaking in a personal capacity, she's a member of the National Executive Committee of the Fabians National Board of Young European Movements and Control Commission of Young European Socialists. Cecilia, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me back. No, Great no, it's a, it's an absolute privilege. And we're going to start, I'm afraid, with Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. So Boris Johnson's former aide, Dominic Cummings, has given evidence at the COVID inquiry this week, and it was shocking. So some of the key points uh, from the inquiry, Boris Johnson suggested COVID is nature's way of dealing with old people. Sir Patrick Vallance, the UK government's chief scientist advisor during the pandemic, noted that Johnson favoured older people accepting their fate and letting the young get on with their life. Cummings frequently called for the sacking of Matt Hancock and other cab cabinet ministers in May 2020. He warned Johnson about the health secretary. Hancock is unfit for this job. The incompetence, the constant lies, the obsession with media. Cummings used misogynistic language to d denigrate the deputy cabinet secretary, Helen McNamara. He claimed McNamara's propriety and ethics teams waste huge amounts of time. In a WhatsApp message to the number 10 communications director, Lee Kane, he said he would personally handcuff her and escort her from the building. Cecilia, what's your response to, to what we're seeing from the COVID inquiries, specifically on some of the, the language, the terms used and the positions of both Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson? So I have to say that I'm largely unsurprised. And whilst there's obviously no love lost between the two of them, it seems that Cummings and McNamara agree on one thing and that there was a complete absence of meaningful contingency planning. A pandemic is a moment when only the state can really provide the necessary protection or remedy for its inhabitants. But of course, in, in 2020, the UK was not ready. We were too badly damaged by years of sec public sector austerity. We couldn't keep up with the expansion of the elderly population and there were upward spurts in inequalities of race and class in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. And so substantial parts of the governing party, we've also got this, this strange mix of public and private and no real cohesion. 
in being able to face something like this. And I know Cummings supported red teams who would stress test contingency arrangements. That would have been great if they had existed. So I think what's coming out of this is just a complete lack of preparedness. And the big question is whether the future government will be more prepared for the -hmm. next catastrophe because there will be a next one. Uh, and I think uh, that that point has been made specifically from the World Health Organization. I wonder if I can get your views, particularly on these um, these comments from Boris Johnson about older people accepting their fate and letting the young get on with their life, um, suggesting that COVID is nature's way of dealing with old people. I mean, it's essentially what happened. We didn't have proper protections in place for people in care homes. We had the PPE crisis. And I think ultimately the Tory party was divided on this because many obviously wanted the right protections in place. But I obviously, from a personal perspective, do not think that that is right at all. We should have had those shields in place and we should have protected our our population, particularly the vulnerable aspects of it. Right. And then I think one of the other major issues or, or one of the major points taken away from some of these whatsapp messages is the is just the kind of language that seems to be used in in whitehall uh and was used at number 10 including again misogynistic language particularly uh allegations of that against dominic cummings i'll read you one of his quotes uh, and 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 forgive the language it's not mine it's his i don't care how and he's talking about helen uh helen mcnamara here i believe uh, yes. i don't care how it is done but that woman must be out of our hair we cannot keep dealing with this horrific meltdown of the british state while dodging stilettos from that cunt delightful i mean i can only say I mean, very, very obviously, it is horrifically misogynistic. It's mm. from literally from the point that he's identified her as a woman. You, there is no need to do that, and there should be no reference to what. A yeah. Woman do you is think? Wearing. Do you think it's so, an insight? I mean, look, one might brush this off as just one unfortunate person, and um, one horribly, horribly, you know, worded comment. But do you think it's more of an insight? into the culture of Westminster and Whitehall and the experiences of many women, because we've spoken previously on this show multiple times about the culture in the the sort of misogynistic culture in Westminster, the constant sort the constant allegations we're getting and investigations into sexual misconduct, harassment, abuse. Um, we've just uh, we've had another MP possibly headed to a by-election uh, because not because of this, but because of uh, allegations of misconduct and bullying. Um, do you think this is a window into what Westminster's really like? I do. Obviously, I can't speak for the entire of Westminster, but as you said, there are so many allegations also coming up now many that were not dealt with properly were brushed under the carpet and comments like that do betray people's actual frame of mind and mentality it's you know we can all say things in the heat of the moment but even dominic cummings himself commented on the lack of diversity in the top levels of leadership and echelons of westminster so It's ironic that he's self-justificatory about it, but that diversity is not there. And the way that it's going will not be there for a long time. 
Right, the next story is we're staying with the Conservatives, but Rishi Sunak this time, whose government will use next week's King's speech to advance expansion of North Sea oil and gas exploration, as well as pro-car policies, uh, in the hope of opening up a clear divide over the green agenda with Labour, um, the Observer understands. Energy industry sources and senior figures in Whitehall say they expect ministers to announce legislation to usher in a new annual system for awarding oil and gas licences, despite the UK's commitment to move away from fossil fuels and reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 they've already rolled back on some of their green initi- uh, initiatives and agendas that they had promised um and there seems to be a clear political objective from the conservatives that this is going to be the dividing line between us and labor green versus not so green what's your response to that i think as the news is showing that it's ultimately dividing the tory party because there are a lot of tory mps who back green policies and that u-turn has been incredibly divisive i don't think rishi sunak is winning himself any friends new or old by doing this because it's it's short-term profit for long term it's short-term profit for long-term damage what do you think the the political impacts will be because i think what they i think they saw uxbridge and south Ryslip in the ulets fight and thought this is a wedge issue this is something that we can set as a dividing line between us and and labor and while labor is promising the sort of uncertainty around and i would question whether that's true but the uncertainty around a green agenda when we are going to be essentially proposing pro-car pro oil and gas, pro-drilling, drill, drill, drill. Um, Do you think that's going to have a political impact in the way that people vote? Yes, I do. I think the green green policies, the green agenda, the climate uh, crisis is top of political decision-making now as a factor. And I think that will be a huge determinant in the way that people vote in the future. Even now, you have people divesting from banks that, that support oil and gas. You've got so many different movements and and protests which are getting it up to the top of the political agenda. So I think it will have a huge impact ultimately. Okay, and then we come to essentially um, the key issue of the day and what seems to be dominating every news headline uh, and column inches uh, in the press, uh, and that is the conflict ongoing in the Middle East. Uh, and we are going to specifically deal with Sakir Starmer's response uh, as he denies uh, that the conflict in the Middle East is tearing the Labour Party apart uh, as he defended his decision not to back a ceasefire in Gaza. Now, bear in mind... Um, a lot of major, major Labour politicians on all sides have now come out in favour of a ceasefire. This includes the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. This includes Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sarwar, um, and, and many, many politicians from the backbenches and the frontbenches um, who have called for a ceasefire. So Keir Starmer has, has resisted these calls for a ceasefire up until now. Um, and in a speech at Chatham House, uh, he said he understands the calls for a ceasefire, but he did not believe it was the correct position to take, putting him at odds with a number of his MPs, shadow ministers who have called for one. Now, this follows what were very, very controversial um, statements on LBC by Sekir Stammer, which he later um, attempted to clarify. Um, he has had a huge amount of upset uh, within the Muslim community specifically, but much beyond as well. What do you make of Keir Starmer's refusal in the face of some of the most senior Labour politicians who have called for a ceasefire, his resistance to calling for one? As well as senior Labour politicians' resistance to uh, avoiding this, 
the UN Human Rights Office has labelled the the Israeli airstrikes in Trabalia as disproportionate attacks that could amount to war crimes. At the moment, looking at the numbers, there's 1,400 Israeli fatalities and the number of people killed in Gaza is now nearing the 9,000 mark. And Mm -hmm. key hospitals have stopped operations and hundreds of thousands of people are now blocked from having humanitarian aid delivered, particularly in the north. So I would say immediate international action is needed to stop these atrocities and both sides must be held accountable. I personally absolutely back calls for a ceasefire and I think Labour MPs should be able to say what they believe. I think can, at the moment you... it is incredibly divisive as it is around the world. Yeah. This, it's, this... Completely, it's an incredibly complex issue but there absolutely should be a ceasefire. And this seems to be the biggest sort of test of Sakir Starmer's leadership from within the party because he is facing down MPs from across sort of traditional factional lines uh, of left and centre in the party. Um, And he has caused huge amounts of upset, uh, particularly within the Muslim communities. Obviously, the majority of those losing their lives in Gaza uh, will be Muslim, but we shouldn't forget that there is a significant Christian community there. There are people of all faiths and none in Gaza, uh, whether that's residents to aid workers to journalists. Um, and he is being accused of lacking real leadership at this time. Do you think that, you know, as as the war continues, I think Benjamin Netanyahu has said that we have reached the height of the ground operation in Gaza. Could this really tear the Labour Party apart as the leader of the party clashes with the Scottish leader, um, the Scottish leader, London mayor, the mayor of Manchester and many others. I think if he doesn't change his narrative, that it will completely sow more division. Yes, because you've got 330 Labour councillors having written to him, asking him for an immediate ceasefire. Um, it's only going to get worse. It's it, you know this war is not going away. If there's not a ceasefire, it will com- it will continue to dominate headlines, and the pressure will be more. It will be on more than ever. Yeah, and I think um, uh, as well as the three hundred councillors, there were two over th- uh, three hundred now. I think Muslim councillors who had written uh, yeah. to Sakir Starmer calling for a ceasefire. Over twenty five have resigned. Um, there are mm-hmm. there are every day we hear rumours of shadow cabinet members uh, who might resign. Uh, as a result uh, of this crisis and Sakir Starmer's refusal to call uh, for a ceasefire. And it seems like anyone um, in constituencies that that feel very passionately about this um, is feeling a lot of pressure. Cecilia, thank you so much uh, for coming back and joining us. Always a pleasure uh, to have you. That was Cecilia, Director in Civil Service, but speaking in a personal capacity. She's a member of the NEC of the Young Fabians. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We are going to stick on this topic uh, of the Israeli-Gaza crisis um, and uh, the war that is currently going on in Gaza. We're going to be joined by some uh, really, really good guests that we can kind of dig into this issue, including Amnon Aran, Professor of International Politics of the Middle East at City University. And joining us a little bit later is the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Dr. Michael Oren. FUBAR Radio presents... All areas. And we are joined now by our lovely guest, James Johnson, celebrity hairdresser. How are you, James? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. What's Mel B like then? I oh, used the to best. be a spice boy. The best energy. Did you sing to her? I no, to... I can't sing. I'm nor can I, but I still I remember don't. the job got cancelled. 
I went to wherever she was staying in London, it got cancelled. And whoever she was living with made us Victoria sponge cake. So the job got cancelled, we all sat around the table eating cake. I got in the car <laughs> and, and I was like, I've just sat with a sponge cake eating Victoria sponge. Oh, noshing a bit of Vicky sponge. <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club. We are joined in the studio now by professional comedian Brett Goldstein. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Brett? Uh, I'm very grateful to be here with you two. If you could dig someone up and fuck them. Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly and Cary Grant, right? Not Kelly, there's not my side. <laughs> if I could dig up Gene Kelly, I'd say, could we do a dance? I've got the shovel in my boot. <laughs> In this scenario, is he still dead when you dig him up, or does he come out? Does he come to life? Is he a rotten corpse, or is he... That's my club. (laughs) Dating or going on dates when you were, like, a teenager was always quite fun, though. Do you know what I mean? I remember going on dates to, like, the cinema, you'd go shopping, like, shopping centres, wouldn't you? I think, if anything, they were... Maybe maybe this just says about life and where it is, but I used to get really excited, like, more excited than I do now. Like, the thought of going to meet someone in a park, a boy, it was like, oh, my fucking God, what trainers am I going to wear? Are my trainers clean? Am I going to plait my hair? It was like... It, the thought that would go through my head just to meet one person, whereas now, you know, you might meet someone on the way home from work and it's like the, the effort, you're still making an effort, but it's like, yeah, I can fit you in. It is, it's completely different. You're listening to Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Welcome back to Fubar Radio. I'm Ali Maloney, the host of Politics uh, Uncensored, and we have um, a very, very impo- important, poignant show for you today. Um, and we have just gone into the ad break talking about the crisis um, in Gaza, uh, and we've got uh, some some excellent guests joining us later that we're going to be able to discuss this issue with. Uh, but just to give uh, some context into how we got to here, uh, and that is the. Uh, Attacks on October 7th uh, really began this round of violence, but it's important to know that that we didn't start on October 7th. You know, history didn't begin on October 7th, but the October 7th uh, violence re-erupted after um, Hamas gunmen launched uh, an unprecedented assault uh, on Israel from the Gaza Strip. Uh, the reports are 1,400 people uh, were killed and over 240 hostages uh, were taken. And since then, we have seen uh, Israeli airstrikes, in Gaza, um, where one in 20 build, uh, buildings are said to have been leveled. Uh, the last check that we did saw that 9,000 Palestinians had been killed, including 3,000 children. Now, bear in mind, before this conflict started, there was a siege on Gaza. Uh, Israel, uh, in large part, controlled everything that went in and out um, of Gaza, including water and food. Um, Gaza had some of the worst uh, water drunk anywhere on the planet. Uh, reports from human rights organizations found um, that over 90% of the water in Gaza was undrinkable. Uh, 80% of the population in Gaza uh, lived uh, day by day uh, requiring aid, international aid um, that had come in and their hospitals were under severe strain. Gaza has 2.2 million people or had 2.2 million people. It is one of the most densely populated areas anywhere in the world uh, and of those 2.2 million nearly half or over half I think are children people under the age of 18 and they have lived in some of the worst conditions on the planet 
uh, it has previously been referred to as an open air prison. Uh, this is perhaps, you know, a, uh, an important description, but one mustn't forget even in prison, you get given drinkable water, you get given food, you're able to see your family members. Uh, and these are things that civilians in Gaza did not receive. Following the attacks, the heinous attacks on October 7th, what we have seen is unprecedented levels of violence come to the Gaza Strip uh, with uh, Israeli assaults from the air and now from land uh, on Gaza, having killed more than 9,000 people, uh, according to the health ministry. Uh, internationally, many nations have been calling for a ceasefire, and that's what we spoke earlier with Cecilia about. So everything from international uh, organizations to the Archbishop of Canterbury, the London mayor, the Manchester mayor have all called for a ceasefire and the release of the hostages. And the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel would not stop military action, saying Israel did not start this war. Israel did not want this war, but Israel will win this war. Joining me now is Professor of International Politics of the Middle East at City University, Amnon Aran. Uh, Amnon's going to join us and talk to us a little bit about the conflict uh, and how we got to where we are and what the future might look like. Uh, Mr. Aran, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, assuming that our listeners are not experts on this topic, can you talk to us a little bit about how we got to the moment of October 7th? Uh, and then we'll deal with what's happened since uh, after. Um, well, thank you for having me. I think there are there were a number of dynamics uh, that were taking place, but I think the the key dynamic really uh, has been uh, the decision that uh, was taken by uh, Hamas um, to effectively build up its military uh, capabilities for over a very long. Uh, period of time, uh, then subsequently plan uh, the attack that it launched um, on 7th October, um, effectively uh, conducting a massacre of over 1,400 um, Israelis. Um, and of course, now we are in the process of retaliation. And the tragedy of all of this is that we've got civilian population in Gaza caught in the fighting. And of course, um, civilians in Israel as well. There are, of course, other issues too, but I think one cannot escape the fact that um, the ideology of Hamas, the political program of Hamas, and very meticulous planning behind the 7th of October, and then, of course, launching the attack, uh, to me, has been uh, really the, the main factor that we should be looking at at this moment in time. Yes, and look, we're good, we'll talk about that. Uh, one of the one of the things that we're that we're going to be discussing, I think, late, later with the former Israeli ambassador to the United States as well, uh, is the humanitarian disaster that is now occurring in Gaza to the innocent population. So, what I want our, our listeners to get a grasp on is really, you know, that there was a humanitarian crisis in Gaza prior to the October seventh attacks, and that is now being made perpetually worse on innocent civilians. Can you give folks a little bit of an insight into what Gaza looked like on October 6th? So I think that is a very, I think that is a very important question that we need to look at. And again, we, I think we need to look a bit further back uh, to 2005. So on 2005, Israel effectively withdrew unilaterally from the Gaza Strip. 
Then there were there was an election uh, within the Palestinian territories. Hamas won those elections democratically. Uh, the elections were declared as free and fair. Uh, and then effectively, um, Hamas was presented with uh, uh, two possibilities uh, by the international community. One was to uh, effectively um, agree to three conditions that were then imposed by or suggested by an organization that was called the Quartet, doesn't exist anymore, uh, to recognize Israel, renounce violence, and um, recognize uh, agreements that were signed previously, meaning the Oslo agreements. Hamas refused. Uh, then, of course, a very strict regime of um, economic sanctions was imposed. Uh, Gaza bore the main brunt of it. And then uh, in 2007, Hamas carried out uh, a forceful takeover of the Gaza Strip, uh, ousting um, many, um, if you like, also operatives of its rival Fatah in a very violent, uh, forceful takeover. Since then, uh, the Gaza Strip has been under very severe um, territorial blockade, meaning that uh, the passing of uh, commodities uh, um, across the range was limited. And since 2009, they were under a maritime siege. And there is a difference between a siege and a blockade that is often not uh, seen. Um, and under those circumstances, of course, uh, the economic situation in Gaza uh, has been dire. Um, it is also a very young uh, population. Uh, and again, I think the real tragedy of what we're seeing now in Gaza is that the civilian population has really been caught between the very between the politics of Israel on the one hand and Hamas on the mm. other hand. And can I we just can we, where we are. can we yeah. can we touch on the blockade and the siege that you spoke about? So yeah. again, I, I want to make this clear because you know most folks won't, won't have studied this. What do yeah. we mean by that? Uh, in essence, does that mean that? any food, any water, medical supplies, anything like that fuel coming in and out of Gaza prior to this crisis was controlled by who? By Israel, by, e by Egypt? So obviously there are two entry points into the Gaza Strip territorially. And the answer to your question is yes. So the different provision that you have described uh, was controlled by the Israelis, uh, if you like, in the eastern and northern parts of the Gaza Strip, which borders with Israel. And then, of course, we've got the Rafah uh, crossing and the southern uh, area where the Gaza Strip uh, borders uh, Egypt. Both Israel and Egypt enforced the blockade, which still, uh, if you like, left room uh, to allow the type of provisions that you've just described to go in, but under a very, uh, I would say, tight regime. There was also uh, uh, funds coming in externally uh, from donating countries, um, also the UK participated, the European Union, but of course also countries such as Qatar, uh, who have been transferring uh, large amounts of money into the Gaza Strip. From the sea, there has been a complete siege, uh, 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 and that means that, uh, uh, and that has been, if you like, enforced solely by uh, Israel, uh, and that meant that the Israelis were trying, um, usually successfully, to avoid uh, any type of provisions coming in from the sea into the Gaza Strip. So if you like, the blockade still allowed for some provisions to come in for some workers from the Gaza Strip mm -hmm. to work in Israel. And I think well. I think this, this siege and blockade that you talk about 
resulted in even UK politicians describing Israel as an um, is describing Gaza as an open air prison. We had reports of the lack of clean water in Gaza, the lack of medical supplies in Gaza. So there really was a humanitarian issue in Gaza long before this uh, crisis began. Yeah, I I agree with the fact that certainly there was a very serious um, humanitarian condition in Gaza. But I think in hindsight, uh, I must say that I would question the description of an, of an open air prison for the simple reason that uh, any prison that I uh, uh, could think of uh, under in such a prison, we could not have seen the type of armament, military training, uh, which... Uh, Hamas was able to develop and launch the type of murderous attack that it did. One thing that we should also remember is that quite a lot of provisions were coming, also being uh, uh, shifted in or smuggled in, however you want to call it, uh, through underneath tunnels uh, from the Sinai Peninsula into the Gaza Strip. Uh, I would be the first. But to I, th- I think the description is in relation to the to the civilian population as opposed to Hamas and. It's it's operatives and soldiers, if you will, on the ground. Yes, but I think, you know, I think we should really think very carefully about how distinguishable the situation of the civilians in Gaza is from the policies of Hamas uh, and also Israel, but predominantly of Hamas, which have really become the main ruler of the territory and since 2006 have not really stood for an election. So mm-hmm. I think... I would be the first to recognize the severe humanitarian condition of Gazans, which has been, which has become much worse, of course, in the context of this horrific war that is taking place. Uh, but I think that part of a solution for the day after, which is something I think all of us need to think about, is also what were the causes for this humanitarian situation, uh, this diet. And I think we need to really think very carefully on how the role, how the multiple actors that are able to exert their influence over Gaza, meaning Israel, Egypt, Hamas, and other actors that are involved in the Gaza Strip, mm-hmm. what can they do differently mm-hmm. in order to finally alleviate so- uh, and to relieve the population in Gaza from the terrible humanitarian situation that they are in, which nobody should. Yeah. So and then we come to the attacks, which you have quite rightly uh, highlighted, the terrible attacks that took place. Uh, One thousand four hundred Israelis lost their lives. I think there were uh, about 250 hostages were brought back to to Gaza. Um, And ever since then, the discussion has been, you know, most Western uh, political leaders have called on Israel's right to defend itself, but the main criticisms have been on the on the question of proportionality, international law, and war crimes that are being committed. Um, in the in the three weeks or so since uh, October seventh and Israel's response, do you believe Israel has violated international law and has acted disproportionately in Gaza? So I think I just need to sort of, I think, just sort of uh, take a step back uh, in the way that you've described the attacks. Uh, I think more than 1,400 people didn't simply lose their lives. Uh, they were massacred. Uh, we've got various evidence uh, of a deliberate and sustained massacre uh, of Israeli civilians. Mm-hmm. And similarly, it's not that 240 civilians were brought back together. They were abducted violently. Correct. Yeah, I was. I, I would. I would never. I would never question that. You're. You're right. They yeah. were killed. No, no, no. And that's abducted. fine. So I think. Yeah. I think we need to sort of put the context uh, correctly. Now, uh, now I think bearing that in mind, um, 
there is, this is, I think, the tragedy of what we are facing. Um, just to sort of give your listeners the context, it's as if you would have a very large force uh, sitting, uh, let's say, uh, you know, in a, in, in a distance of two tube stops in London, which has just committed uh, this type of massacre. And then a government is asked, what is it supposed to do? Um, I must confess that I there are two key principles that are really uh, uh, here against each other. One is the duty of every government to provide security for its citizens. Uh, uh, and the other one, of course, is international law. Um, I cannot, I don't think the debate about proportionality is particularly helpful here because I would put the question to you, what would you consider to be a proportional uh, uh, response if you made these sort of population adjustments? If somebody, you know, invaded the UK and slaughtered during the morning. Uh, well, what I, well, listen, what I would say is, listen, what I would say no. is it's probably, yeah. you know, I would not if someone had in, uh, had if the UK had come under that attack, depriving an innocent population of water, food, medical supplies uh, and fuel that keeps hospital incubators, for example, running would probably be disproportionate. We've got reports here from the BBC uh, who have verified that um, northern Gazans were, were told um, to leave and then the southern areas which were supposed to be safe were then bombed by Israel. One in 20 buildings has been leveled. 9,000 Palestinians have died including 3,000 children who bear no responsibility to what's happened. So I would suggest perhaps that while I absolutely agree with you that, 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 the, that the killing of, 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 of these innocent Israeli souls was was a horrific act and condemnable by anyone with a soul and the hostages taken should absolutely be freed that making innocent Palestinian souls pay the price for what Hamas has done by indiscriminate bombings reports by every international institution of disproportionality and war crimes the siege of complete water fuel and electricity from Gaza perhaps perhaps that's not the way to go so I think there, there are a few things that I would sort of just maybe um, add to to your description. I think um, some governments, including the UK government and the United States government, the German government and the French government, uh, have not taken the view of some of the relief agencies. I think the key question, and I must confess that I don't think any of us have an answer to now, and this is why I think um, it is difficult to establish hard and fast facts, is the degree to which, and I think we all need to be honest about this, the degree to which Hamas has embedded its uh, uh, terrorist fighters or fighters, however you want to call them, um, into the civilian population. Um, this is something that we have completely contrasting reports on, and that, of course, has a dramatic effect on the impact that the ferocious Israeli attacks have. I'll just give one example. One example, you know, if you have the metro tunnels underneath a hospital uh, or a command center, as the Israeli claims, as the Israeli claim, that's one thing. And of course, if you don't, that's another. And that's why, um, for me, it is at the moment very difficult to ascertain uh, what is causing the horrific situation in Gaza and. I would 100% agree with you, the loss of innocent lives, which we all should be committed to bring an end to uh, and offer the population in Gaza uh, 
you know, a, a, a human future. Yeah, but I mean, look, I guess the what what listeners will be hearing and most concerned about is, for example, the Jabalia refugee camp that has yeah. been bombed in the last few days. Right. Israel yeah. has claimed that it killed a senior uh, Hamas operative. But yeah. we know from reports on the ground, credible reports on the ground, verified by news agents here in the UK, that 120 people, mostly women and children, were killed as a as a use of, I think the allegations are JDAMs were used, which are what's a specific weapons uh, that create these craters. The, 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 the question anyone, any human would be asking is, you know, the, 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 the indiscriminate bombings of civilian populations is surely not only morally long, wrong, but legally wrong. So I think certainly on this uh, on this event, I think, uh, first of all, there is a question, uh, you know, what is ahead of the battalion of Hamas, who is the, the one that was killed, is doing in the middle of a refugee camp? Uh, and of course, there were several other Hamas fighters that were killed, uh, that were killed with him. Again, I do not have all the facts. We know that there was a crater. Again, we do not know whether the crater was caused solely by the attack or because there was a collapse of the surface uh, into the ground because there was a whole metro tunnel system of Hamas underground. Uh, I'll give you another example: the bombing of the Al Ahli Hospital a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago, right at the beginning of the uh, 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 this horrific war. Um, the BBC, since you gave the example came very quickly to the conclusion that this was uh, an Israeli attack. No, they Israeli didn't. No, they didn't. The BBC, the BBC journalist that you're quoting said it looked like that yeah, the only conclusion like... could be that it was Israel, but they did not yeah. confirm it. And to this day, no one has confirmed it. We've had exactly. international... But then again, but then again, like you said, the different uh, interpretations. Yeah. And the New York know. Times, consequently, uh, after it was reported that it was a misfiring rocket from within yeah. Gaza, the New York Times said it perhaps wouldn't be. So we don't spe- we don't specifically know what happened there, but the reports exactly. the don't. reports have and gone think, both ways. But I think I mean, look the, the 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 question is, look the the reason proportionality exists in international law is because war can come to any of us at any point, and I think as human beings we would expect that whether there are you know whether there are actors somewhere let's say the most heinous attack is committed in london for example yeah i would not expect my family to be indiscriminately bombed and killed with the view of seeing one commander or one terrorist destroyed right so the question is you know yes the state has a right to defend itself but these nine thousand palestinian innocent people and three thousand children should surely not pay the price they are innocents well, like I said, I think the question is, uh, you know, I think there are two issues here. First of all, um, Hamas has made it clear, uh, and you probably are aware of uh, Ghazi Hamid, who spoke yesterday, that if they had the opportunity, he said that yesterday, not me, uh, they would do it again and again and again. If you look at Hamas's documentation, their founding charter, their revised uh, uh, political um, documents, they say very clearly that that their aim is to obliterate the state of Israel, uh, uh, and as long as that takes, they are willing to do it. So the question is, look, I'm, I'm going to end on this question because I think we're going round and round. Sure. Uh, Osama bin Laden was one of the most sought-after terrorists in the world for a time, yeah. uh, and when the US got intelligence that he was hiding in Pakistan, would they have been right to have carpet-bombed that town in Pakistan to get Osama bin Laden? 
Well, it's a very good example that you give because when the 9-11 attacks happened, which really should be the parallel that you should be drawing on, the United States did not invade one country, but invaded two countries, and then, of course, went out and conducted regime change. And in fact, probably together with the UK, as you will remember, uh, were far less discriminate. I don't know if less. They were certainly indiscriminate. Uh, I don't want to make comparisons in how... No, I mean, it's a good comparison, but I mean, one of the comparisons that's also been made is that in the days following the October 7th uh, attacks, Israel dropped more bombs on Gaza than America did in a year in Afghanistan. Over 6,000 um, bombs all, dropped. I, it, and it I think there's a difference in size between yeah. the Gaza Strip and Afghanistan. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, again, you, you're, you're sort of shifting the, 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 the topics slightly. I'm not familiar with that statistic. But again, to go back to the question that you asked me about Osama bin Laden, uh, we have a clear example of how the United States and the UK, the UK was even not, not attacked in 9-11, and still uh, its government uh, went ahead and invaded not one country, uh, but two, uh, and on several occasions conducted indiscriminate attacks. So I think you've really touched the almost um, unresolvable tension that states exist in when they face um, attacks such as the one that Israel faced on 7th November, uh, 7 October, forgive me, uh, and the way the United States interpreted 9-11, which of course was completely different. How do you respond? I'm not sure that the... Um, discourse on proportionality is entirely helpful. I think the key question that we need to ask is how do we avoid and how do we stop the permanent loss of life? And what we have seen also, if I can just maybe add one more thing, on all previous occasions, and there were, this is, in my account, the sixth uh, very violent round uh, uh, between Israel and Hamas, on all the previous occasions, one could argue there was an element of proportionality. And what happened is mm -hmm. that we only saw escalation. Yeah, uh, and I, I think uh, we're going to, I'm sorry, we're just going to have to cut you short because we, we are we are short on time. We are going to sure. continue to talk about this question of proportionality. Um, and, and, you know, one might suggest international law is a good place um, to start, but we have discussed that with you. So uh, I want to give a big thank you to uh, Amnon Aran, Professor of International Politics and the Middle East at City University uh, for joining us. Joining us next um, is Dr. Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Uh, from the years 2009 to 2013. He's going to join us after this short break. FUBAR Radio presents... As handsome as you imagine. What did you have for breakfast that morning? Almost certainly a pie. For breakfast? Yeah, because we started really, really early, right? At the butchers. Yeah. We started proper early. That's yeah. like 7 o'clock. I would have had at least six pies. A day? A day. That is a lot of pies. No, no, because we sold them at the shop. That is a legitimate answer to the question, who ate all the pies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From 1pm every Monday... Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on Politics Uncensored. We are discussing the uh, the war in Gaza and joining us now, I believe, is Dr. Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States from 2009 to 2013. Dr. Oren, thank you so much for joining us. Can you hear me OK? I hear you fine. 
amazing. I, I believe you're joining us from Tel Aviv. We've been talking today about, um, specifically with my last guest, uh, around following the, the, the horrific attacks of October 7th, uh, what the expectation on Israel can be uh, in terms of its response and proportionality. So I might ask if we can begin there. What responsibilities okay. do you think lie on Israel to act, whether within international law or within moral frameworks uh, within Gaza? I think we have that responsibility. I think we put that responsibility on ourselves. We don't need anybody to remind us. But uh, uh, having said that, we also have a responsibility to live and to survive here. And if we do not get rid of Hamas, we will not be able to do that. So I might ask, look, we, uh, the reports coming out from our new, uh, news organizations are that 9,000 Palestinians uh, have been killed, 3,000 children have been killed. And I want to ask you specifically on this point. Um, three children that we know and have been named are a student, Janan Walid Al-Masri, 13 years old, uh, an aspiring gamer, Auni Al-Dus, who is 12 years old, and another student, Mariam Farwa, who was five years old. Yeah. How can their killing be justified? So this is what I think. First of all, you know, the, the, the statistics are all from the, the Palestinian health ministry, which is Hamas. Okay. And we know how Hamas you know, what, what those statistics uh, reflect in terms of reality. But I think you have to ask that question to a spokesman from Hamas, not to me. Well, look, the, 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 <laughs> the question we have is on proportionality. And the, these children died as a result of Israeli bombings. And so I wanted to get your perspective as a former ambassador as to whether you believe Israel has acted disproportionately, as has been accused by international organizations, human rights organizations, yeah. following the attacks... Thanks. They can accuse us all they want. Disproportionality, which nobody seems to understand, is the amount of force you need to remove a threat to your citizens. I'm sitting here in South Tel Aviv. We're getting bombed every day. How much proportionality would you like? How much proportionality did Britain use against Germany when they bombed Coventry in World War II? A little disproportionality there, huh? So yeah. listen. But sir, we, we, gonna, we, we created we international frameworks are, uh, coming out of that war so innocent yeah. civilian populations would not pay the price for what others have done. There are 2.2 million innocent people in Gaza. Surely they should not be held to account for something that they had nothing to do with. Well, let's see. I can debate that. They happen to actually vote Hamas into office overwhelmingly. So I don't know. I mean, there haven't been elections born. in Gaza since 2005. Are you seriously suggesting that 2.2 million people in Gaza bear any responsibility, innocent people, children, over half of whom as are children, as, to what I Hamas did? The entire responsibility falls on Hamas. Fine, entire responsibility falls on Hamas. But what about the... I, we, we bear none. We bear none. And explain. You're going to let me explain? Correct. I just want to keep Go asking ahead. questions. Okay? This, this is... We told the, the Palestinian population, innocent or not, to flee the battle area because we have to go in there and destroy Hamas. We just have to. We cannot survive as a state in that way. No state could. And Hamas, many, many fled the area, but others did not. Many did not because they were kept from fleeing by Hamas at gunpoint. At gunpoint. Well, we've and got that creates a situation where, where Hamas is using this population as a human shield, as it's using our hostages as a human shield. And if, if civilians get hurt, and believe me, no one's celebrating here. No one's giving out candy. No one's uh, setting off fireworks, as the Palestinian population of Gaza did every time our people got massacred. We're not doing that. We're doing our best to avoid it. Right. But sir, but if I may ask on this question of asking people to leave, we've got a report here from the BBC that has been published today that yeah. they have verified through their networks, and I, I think you, would, you wouldn't 
question the credibility of the BBC. Oh, the... I would very much question. You know something? The BBC is a well, national me... joke here. We actually have caricatures of the BBC on our national television. You guys, the BBC is anything but anything but a credible source in the state of Israel. I mean, look, the, BBC, the BBC is the, quote, is the main quote, broadcast quote the news here in the source. UK have claimed <laughs> yeah, that Israel right. has attacked the safe areas in which it has asked Palestinian civilians to move. So while they've told them to move from northern Gaza, the areas that are supposed to be safe have also been bombed. This includes Khan Yunus and other areas. The report is on BBC now. Are you saying the BBC is lying? No, actually, in this case, actually, BBC is not lying. Uh, there actually have been attacks in the south because Hamas is in the south as well. In the, in the south, Hamas is also using the civilian. So where are Gaza and civilians supposed to go? Well, ask Hamas that. But the, You're asking the wrong guy. Listen, we don't, we don't have a, we don't, for, for good reason, we well, don't wait, have a spokesperson wait, wait, wait. You, for Hamas you, wait, on the show. You can't have it both ways. You can't quote Hamas sources and then... I'm not quoting Hamas, Hamas sources. Source. I'm quoting the BBC. Yeah, of course you are. I'm quoting no, the BBC. Quoted, you just quoted the Hamas sources on the amount of casualties. Ask them. It's a very good question to ask the Hamas people. Why? Why are they using their population as human shields? Why do they build an entire city underground? hundreds of miles of tunnels and bunkers right under hospitals, schools, civilian neighborhoods. I think it's a very legitimate question. Why don't you ask them that? Well, look, I don't have a spokesperson for Hamas, and I would never have a spokesperson well, for Hamas on this show. But the question is, to, look, as a former ambassador uh, to the United States of Israel, yeah. you surely hold yourself to a higher standard to that of Hamas. And that's where the question well, of proportionality... That's racist. Why? Why, do you, why would you hold Palestinians to a lower standard than Israel? Well, if Hamas, is a Hamas in the UK is a what, prescribed think, terrorist organization. Lower, let me ask you a question. Do you think lower, Arabs are low, lesser human beings? Absolutely not. That's, that's, lewd, that's a ludicrous that's, thing to suggest. What I'm well, suggesting is, said, yeah, is a democracy. No, well, I hold a democratic state, a, a state that, that, you know, espouses itself to be a liberal democracy to a higher standard than a, than a prescribed terrorist organization. Am I wrong? Uh, oh, they, oh, they are terrorists, though. You admit they're terrorists. They're prescribed. Of course, they're a prescribed terrorists. terrorist organization in the UK. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm good to hear that. I'm very good to hear that because not militants. They are terrorists. I didn't but, once use the word yeah, militants do, on this hire, show. In fact, Matt, we do we do hire ourselves, hold ourselves to a much higher standard. We actually have a law. We so that's that's whole, that we have a whole moral code in our army. So and that, we do our best. And that's and that is the that that is the people to flee. And that is the purpose of my question. We that, put thousands and thousands of police blitz telling them where to go. And then bomb the safe areas. Tell them where to go. And then bomb we the only safe areas. Safe areas where Hamas is firing from. But where, so I mean, then, where can, where can the innocent people of Gaza go? Do they are they just are they given a death sentence for something that they haven't done? There's no death sentence. They can go away from ever, wherever Hamas is firing if Hamas will let them go. Thomas doesn't let them go. You're not getting it. And, you know, international law is terrific. I studied international law, but international law is not a suicide pact for any society at all. And so here's the question I want to ask you lastly on this, yeah. on, the, on the question of international law. The question of international law as it pertains uh, to collective punishment is extremely clear. And one of the major criticisms of Israel here in the UK have been in its response, the complete siege of Gaza, depriving innocent people of electricity, food and fuel. That is a direct contravention to Article 6 of the Geneva Convention that I've got in front of me, which is the deliberate inflicting on a group of condition uh, on a group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. So what is your response to the criticism that the collective punishment and the depriving of innocent Palestinians who have nothing to do with Hamas are, of water, have, fuel, no, and medical no supplies? We're, we're under no obligation. And in fact, we are an obligation to our own citizens and our own safety and security not to provide Hamas with electricity, with internet connections, 
with fuel. No state in its right mind, including your state, would ever do such a thing. And if your state did do such a thing, I would expect you as a citizen of the UK to raise your voice in, in extreme protest. Well, I, that what is I, the reality where we live. I mean, look, I, what, I, what I would expect is my Try state again. not to switch off incubators of infants <laughs> in hospitals who bear no responsibility because a, a, a group might have committed the most heinous attack on us. Surely we, we should act in a moral way and within international law. Okay, but if under that hospital is a major Hamas headquarters, what would you do? I don't I'm not, think I'm not supposed to ask the journalist the question. But honestly, <laughs> what would I, you do? Well, this is would the, you say, okay, the, listen, they're under the hospital. We're not going to touch them. They can continue killing us. They can still continue mutilating our children. They can continue raping and burning and taking hostage and firing a couple of hundred rockets every day at our neighborhoods. It's fine mm -hmm. because they're under so, a hospital. If I may, I'll I'll, I'll, really? end, I'll, I'll, end, <laughs> I'll end on this question because I asked my previous guests yeah. of this. Osama bin Laden was one of the most sought after terrorists in the world, and the U.S. had right. gathered intelligence uh, that he was hiding uh, in a town in Pakistan. Pakistan, would it have right. been right for the U U.S. to act in similar ways and indiscriminately bomb Pakistan? Listen, I hate I hate to ruin your day, but the SEAL team SEAL team six that went into that building killed one of Bin Laden's sons and shot the wife of his brother, shot his sister-in-law dead. Correct, but they did they didn't All level right. one in twenty buildings in the town. They didn't they didn't they deprive was, that town of town. water. It was, it, was, it was an isolated it was an isolated building, and everybody in that building that interfered with that operation was shot. And you know why? Because the SEAL Team 6 was not responsible for their deaths. Bin Laden was. And it's actually an excellent example. Thank you. Let's end well, It's an excellent example of what I'm talking about. Well, the, exa the example is that the, 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 the rest the of that town were not held responsible for what Bin Laden US, had done. And by the way, nobody came to the US military and said, you are responsible for killing an innocent boy. I think, I think you'll find the that there were- was because everyone understood. Everyone I th understood that I Bin think Laden was responsible for killing his son by having them. I think you'll find that there were plenty of allegations, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, of of international law being violated, and there was a plenty movement within our countries to urge our government and our military to act in a proportionate way. Um, Very good. You're, you're, you and your government are not under hundreds of rocket fire every day. You and your people are not getting your, your throat split. And well, that's a big difference. I, th I, th I, th I think you'll find lots of Britons did lose their lives at seven, uh, in, in terrorist attacks uh, in our cities uh, as well. And nonetheless, I think the move, there was wide-scale calls from within British society that we don't act immorally, that we don't breach international law, and we don't uh, commit war crimes. Uh, I want to thank you so much. That was Dr. Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, uh, joining us on the show to talk about um, the current conflict in Gaza uh, and the response and proportionality of the response uh, of the Israeli government. Um, we should be clear, and I should be absolutely clear on this show, um, that no life is, is held any differently uh, to any others. The, the killing of an Israeli innocent civilian and soul is tragic. The killing of, an Israel, uh, of a Palestinian innocent soul is equally tragic. And the calls from the international community have absolutely been that what you cannot do is hold 2.2 million people collectively responsible for what Hamas has done. Um, and I think uh, you can listen to that previous interview and make your own minds up about uh, whether that is happening and the view there. I just want to leave you with some quotes uh, that have caused concern um, around whether Palestinians are being held collectively responsible. Uh, a report from Sky News found that it reported that an Israeli defense official 
said that Gaza would be turned into a city of tents. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant was reported to have referred uh, to uh, people in Gaza, uh, Hamas included, as human animals. Uh, and other reports um, from Israeli TV also had um, defense uh, or, or senior officials saying that damage, um, uh, not accuracy, uh, was was the goal uh, in Gaza. Now, these are reports coming uh, from elsewhere, and I would encourage everybody to read um, these reports. As we speak now, 9,000 Palestinians are dead, 3,000 children included, if not more. Um, there are allegations of war crimes, including the complete siege of Gaza Strip, including cutting of electricity, food, fuel, and medical supplies. I, for me, you know, there's, there's no question that that is a war crime. Uh, the bombing of refugee camps such as Jabilia, which has killed 120 people, mostly women um, and children. And we mustn't forget that the violence hasn't stopped in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. The Guardian has reported settlers driving Palestinians uh, from their home. There are now reports of over 120 people dead in the West Bank um, as well. Uh, and unfortunately, it looks like we are far from the end um, of this conflict. Uh, we have reached the point of the show where we do vox pops and that is where our wonderful producers go out onto the streets and and speak to ordinary folk in central london to th see what people really think um and this week is about arnold schwarzenegger who has declared that he would make a great u.s president so we asked folks which celebrity would you most like to see as prime minister i want Gillian anderson i think she's so cool i think she's got a lot of wisdom she's built up a really good career she's seen a lot and i feel like she's got a lot of knowledge and yeah Probably Dolly Parton. She's got a great positive outlook. And I feel that's what the country needs at the moment. Anybody but a politician. Because they're lying. Beep, 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 beep. I'll bleep it out for you. <laughs> I love Kylian Mbappé. Uh, Martin Lewis, mm -hmm. the uh, finance guy. He thinks for the general public. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, when you hear him speaking, it, it's, um, it's what can be done for us, basically. And what, uh, so we can uh, look out for and and do. Uh. Tilda Swinton, because I would like to see what outfits she wears every day as prime minister. <laughs> I'd like her prime ministerial wardrobe. That's well, if somebody doesn't have a prime ministerial wardrobe, it's me. So if if that's uh, if that's the context in which people are judging their politicians. I think I failed that one, guys. Um, we have come, regrettably, to the to the end of the show. It's um, It's been a really, really important and somber one today. Um, uh, you you will have heard differing views, uh, but I want to make it clear, you know, that we, our hearts go out to everybody um, who has been killed um, and their families, friends, uh, all the people who continue to suffer um, and that the core from most humanitarian organizations, most people, uh, though they might be speared, smeared by some, uh, is that all life should be valued equally, um, that the hostages should be released, that there should be, and you know, our, my call has been that there should be immediate ceasefire in Gaza, and that we should work towards a political solution. We cannot keep doing this. We cannot hold 2.2 million people responsible for what Hamas has done. We can't be killing children like Mariam Farwana, five years old, who's lost her life as a result of Israeli bombings. And while some might want to, to tarnish 
her name and her family and her fellow citizens as terrorists and Hamas. She has bore no responsibility to what happened on October 7th. And equally, our, our, our prayers go out to the families uh, who have lost loved ones on, on, um, and who's, who still don't know where, where their family are in terms of the hostages. Uh, as well thank you so much uh, for listening in you can go back and listen to all our previous episodes at Fubar Radio and on all good platforms including uh, podcasts on Apple and on Spotify and elsewhere uh, you can follow us at Fubar Radio uh, and at Politics uh, Fubar on Instagram on Twitter on, on TikTok I am Ali Milani UK uh, you can follow me on all good platforms do join me next week uh, as we have more good guests uh, and touch on some of the top political topics around the world. Thank you so much. Salams.